Later, knowing that everything has now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders, with Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb, in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. May God bless this reading. Friends, next week, we look at the resurrection and what a joy that is. But without Jesus' death on the cross, there is no resurrection. So let's just pray for the grace we need as we look at the, the challenging, confronting events of the cross. Let's pray. Dear Lord, as we gather this morning to remember the events of Jesus dying on the cross, please help me to speak faithfully from your word and that through it we will come to understand that we are more sinful than we realise and more loved than we could ever imagine. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, it's difficult to understand the events of the cross or feel its significance if we don't appreciate what's at stake. Now, if a person's stuck clinging to a sinking boat and uh, they know they need a saviour and they are begging to be saved. But if you don't feel that sense of imminent crisis, then you don't recognise your need for help. Today, as we look at the events of the cross, uh, for some, it's the tragic death of an innocent man, but no more tragic than thousands of other deaths throughout history. Certainly more famous than most, but still, it's just another death. For others, it was the death of a good man, a wise teacher, a cultural revolutionary, but still just another death. But as we work through our passage today, I hope we can see that uh, this event, for what it really is, 
and why it matters for each of us. Last week, we looked at Jesus being arrested and brought before the Jewish religious leaders and then before Pilate. And the whole event is, is tragedy upon tragedy. Judas, you know, one of the 12 disciples, betrays Jesus. And then Peter, his, his disciple, one of his closest, dearest friends, denies Jesus, not once, but three times. And Jesus, all the way through, he remains faithful and stays the course. His father sent him to do a job. And despite all the pressure, he will see it through for the glory of his father, but also for the sake of humanity, for our sake so that we might be forgiven and have life. Last week, our passage ended with Pilate trying to release Jesus. And our passage today continues, not with Jesus' freedom, but with Jesus being mocked and humiliated. Starting verse 1. If you do have your Bibles, keep them open. That'll be helpful. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they slapped him in the face. And again, he brings Jesus before the crowd. and Again, they yell for him to be crucified. And again, Pilate tries to, dis to dissuade them. You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. And then, for the first time since his arrest, we have a clear charge. Verse 7, we have a law and according to that law he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. Now they're referring to a passage in the book of Leviticus chapter 24 which says this, anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord is to be put to death. They're outraged that Jesus would claim to be king but the real offence that's going on here is that Jesus is actually claiming to be the son of God. And to make that claim means to be equal with God. It's the sort of claim you'd normally ignore. But Jesus has become a person of influence. Done some amazing things. He's saying things and doing things that really set him apart from that kind of loony fringe. And that makes him a threat to the status quo. And so the religious leaders truly see themselves in this moment as doing God's work. Obeying Leviticus 24. And actually, this is exactly what Jesus was talking about a few chapters ago when he said to his disciples, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a sacrifice to God. Now, Pilate, Pilate tries, he may can't change their minds. I think he was hoping that you know, the flogging and humiliation would be enough to kind of appease the crowd and they'd all back off. But he was quite wrong, wasn't he? Hearing that Jesus is claiming to be divinely appointed makes Pilate even more nervous. He's afraid. And that kind of reaction, I think, captures the ambivalence of Pilate. He's willing to beat and humiliate Jesus to appease the crowd. But he's also fearful. What if Jesus really is a holy man? And his actions poke the bear and provoke the wrath of God or the gods? In theory, Pilate's the one in control. He's the Roman governor, but right now he doesn't feel in control. And Jesus doesn't help much when he says, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. 
in the end, Jesus really gives him no choice. He refuses to give Pilate any plausible excuse to release him. And now, for the rest of human history, Pilate will only be remembered for this one decision. He's tried to win the mob over and release Jesus, but when that fails, he commits Jesus to be crucified because, let's face it, the sacrifice of one man was a small price to pay for the peace of the city. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Now, we don't know exactly what motivated Pilate to have the sign nailed to the cross, uh, reading, you know, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Um, Maybe it was merely stating his crime. Uh, The Romans often nailed a a list of crimes to the cross above their their victims. That would serve as a really clear warning to others. But from everything that has transpired here, I think it was his way of taking some control back in the situation. He's not going to be dictated by the religious establishment. And for everyone watching, this is a lesson in what happens when you try to defy the power of Rome. But from the crowd's perspective, this sign must have rung hollow because his kingship had failed before it even begun. He entered Jerusalem a week earlier to crowds singing his praises. And now he's being dragged back out of the city gates, humiliated, tortured, crucified. He came, he saw, he said some inspirational words, but he did not conquer. And the full weight of the moment is felt when Jesus utters those words, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And John wants us to be clear that that Jesus is completely, unmistakably, undeniably dead on the cross. The man who saw it has given testimony and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you also may believe. And as everyone's standing there looking at Jesus and the blood and the water dripping from the gaping wound in his side, no one would have questioned that Jesus was now dead. But that's going to change in a few days, isn't it? What was clear and obvious in this very moment wouldn't be so clear when Jesus rises again. That's next week. But John also wants to reassure those reading his account that despite all the evidence, things are actually exactly as Jesus meant them to be. Exactly according to plan. This is all part of what God had planned from the very beginning. And John provides that reassurance through what appears to be a very benign sequence of words, we see it a few times, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. So we read those words in the context of the soldiers dividing up his clothes and in Jesus declaring his thirst and in the decision of the soldiers not to break his legs and again in their decision to pierce his side with a spear. God has already scattered the breadcrumbs of these events in the words of the Psalms and the Old Testament law and the prophets so that those who come after Jesus, and that includes us here today, we would be able to see how it all fits together. The whole Old Testament is pointing forward to Jesus. Promised 
the promised Messiah, has now come. But Jesus is not what everyone expected either. Everyone was expecting the Messiah to come as a, a lion, victorious, a warrior figure like King David in the Old Testament who would smite his enemies, restore the glory of Israel. But God's plan was for the Messiah to come as a lamb who would be sacrificed as a substitute for the sins of his people. And it's this issue of sin and substitution that's right at the heart of why Jesus had to die. Our passage today is all about what happened. But the whole book of John is about why it had to happen. So we heard the why in the words of John 3.16, for example. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life because God's wrath remains on them. John 10 verse 11, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The cross testifies to God's love for humanity, but also God's love for each of us personally. We might be one of seven billion people on the planet right now. But God knows each one of us. And he loves us. And he sent his son to die for us. Which is really astounding. But really comforting too. Because for the most part we don't feel particularly deserving of, uh, of great attention or significance. Um, I mean on, on a global scale. Uh, we just don't feel we contribute much to life or, or make much of a difference. Uh, for most of us I think. And uh, I suspect for many, the last 18 months have exacerbated those feelings of inadequacy. The world defines value by, by what we contribute. But God defines our value simply in our personhood. We're made in his image. We might not feel particularly loved in life, but God loves his sheep, each one. And we see that love most clearly at the cross. Not just that he dies for us, but that he died for us while we rejected him. Backs turned, not even interested. In fact, he dies for us because we've rejected him. And so the cross testifies to the love that he has for us. But the cross also testifies to the seriousness of our sin against God. We have hard, stubborn hearts that refuse to see the goodness of God or his glory or his rightful authority over our lives. And our judgment is so impaired that we struggle to see ourselves clearly too. Some struggle to see their own value and worth. Others value them, themselves more highly than they ought. And I think we all struggle to value others as God would have us. Now, if you're a person who, who feels your sin particularly acutely, then you'll feel like you, you constantly fail and let God down. And the burn of the shame and guilt can be overwhelming. If that's you then look at the cross 
look at the cross and know that sin no longer has any power over you. Absolutely, we need to come back and, and keep confessing our sin, acknowledging it, repenting. But the events of the cross have freed you from the accusation of your sin. You have passed from death to life. If we are followers of Christ, then we're all works in progress, but we are loved and forgiven works in progress. As Paul says in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But for others, the issue isn't feeling overburdened by our sin. In fact, completely the opposite. We don't feel our sin enough. We redefine sin by what the world values rather than what God values. Or we justify our sin as, as harmless. Or we kind of posture ourselves as the victim rather than the perpetrator. I wouldn't be so angry if uh, they weren't so annoying. Uh, or if they did, did their job properly or, or if they cleaned their rooms or put the milk away in the fridge or kept the toilet seat down whatever the issue is for you. Um, we often do that sort of thing. And if that's our approach to sin, then we need to look at the cross also and see that our sin really is that serious. We need to recognise that our, our sin has consequences, not just in this life, but eternal consequences. It damages our relationships. It's an abuse of power. It exploits the vulnerable. But more significantly, it has consequences in terms of our standing before God. If sin wasn't serious, why did Jesus have to die? So if we are complacent about our sin, then we have three options. If we are already committed to following Christ as Lord and Saviour, and we're complacent about sin, then we need to get our house in order. In the words of David, we need to pray that God will return to us the joy of our salvation. Or in the language of Paul, uh, in Galatians, we need to get back in step with the Spirit of God. Now, if you never really cared about your sin, and uh, for the first time recognise uh, here this morning that sin is separating you from God now and for eternity... The God who gave you life, the God who offers you eternal life. And then you understood that, that Jesus is your substitute on the cross. Then today's the day to accept Jesus' death in your place and to put your trust in him. When we do that, we acknowledge our sin. We commit to turning away from our sin and living for the glory of Jesus accepting his love, accepting his lordship and his grace and his mercy. The third option, we could continue to stand where we naturally stand. And if there is a God, well, we'll choose to bear all the consequences of sin on ourselves in this life and fraternity. See what happens, hey? If you think your good is good enough, then look at the cross. Jesus went to the cross because sin is that serious. And that's what it looks like. That's what it looks like to bear the punishment for sin. Jesus hanging on the cross is an image of complete failure 
the system won. Another challenger to the status quo defeated. But in reality, this is the moment that God chose to deal with our sin once and for all, literally. So if you're a Christian here today, then our reaction should be serious joy. Serious because we, we should feel the weight of what Christ did for us on the cross. Our sin is serious. And there was a terrible price to pay. But there is also great joy. Because we've been freed from the eternal consequences of sin. And with that comes peace with God. And a completely different perspective on life. Dear friends, let's thank God for the cross. But it's only by Jesus' death as our substitute that we can find life in his name. Amen.